Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Francis. <sighs> Thank you. Um, who is the timekeeper? I am. My name is Arlene. Hi, Arlene. Hi. Uh, can you give me a warning after, at each 10 minute increment? Happy to. Thanks. I probably won't go to 620, but anyway, we'll start. Thanks, Arlene. Um, sure. Hi, I'm Francis, and I am a, a very grateful recovering compulsive overeater. I cannot tell you all how grateful I am. I'm scrolling through at all of these spaces. It's, it's incredible. I kept telling my husband, I'm speaking at one of the biggest OA meetings. And he's like, yeah, you keep telling me. <laughs> when I was asked, I felt like, oh my gosh, this is like the big stage. And I had to remember, you know, this is not a stage. It's not a performance. Um, I'm a little nervous, but I realize that hearing the newcomers and people be honest about where they're at around their abstinence went straight through my soul and reminded me that this qualification is not about me. And it's not about, it's like, it's not about me. It's about this higher purpose of this fellowship is to help the person that is compulsively overeating. And that the only requirement in this fellowship is a desire to stop eating compulsively. And, you know, I'm just one person in this fellowship that is showing up for that recovery. So I, and then hearing the, the happy birthday, whoo, and to the newcomers and to the people that are counting days, you just really helped my recovery by being honest and by being here. So thank you. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about what to share. Not a lot, but you know, just sort of like, well, where was my recovery? How did I get here? Where, where am I now? And I will start, I think one of my clearest memories was given, being given money as a little girl, four or five years old, and running to the store on the corner that had plexiglass with all the different candies. And like, I was so excited that I could tell the guy what I wanted. And I can still, I can, you know, I can still see the plexiglass and I'm 56 years old. And I was a compulsive overeater for probably most of my childhood and uh, into well into my adulthood. Um, it was painful. I guess, you know, I wanted, there's a lot I want to say. I'm going to start with, I have a really dear friend that I worked the steps with in OA. She and I have known each other in OA for well over 20 years. We talk every day. We do the steps once a week. And she told me about this podcast. And, you know, she's like, check this out. And then I became completely addicted to them. I, like, it was the only thing I wanted to listen to in my car in LA where we're always, you know, I'm always on the road and so it's wild for me to be here. It's like so wild that this thing that I've listened to and I've been so gripped by these stories that people have told 
And I always get sad when people talk about the devastation of the disease because I know that pain. I mean, I was overweight as a kid. I was the only one in my family, I really think that was in that active addiction around food. And it was really bad. I mean, I remember one time my mother was walking through, I don't know, I had to be 10 or 11. She was walking through the living room and I did not want her to know that I had snuck Pop-Tarts. And so in the middle of the summer with shorts on, I put the Pop-Tart underneath my thighs to just like act like I was just sitting there, you know? And my brother was old, he's older than me, couple years and he was always thin and to this day my brother can take a bite of something and put it in the like a bite of a chocolate bar and put it in the refrigerator and people used to joke you know are you stealing his food because I was heavy I was overweight I was binging um I didn't know what else to do I didn't know that there you know I was a kid it was what I found to soothe myself and I sucked my thumb until I was 13 and I was looking you know I was looking for soothing basically um, and it was a tough childhood, you know, I guess once I found the food, I was like, great, you know, here's something that I can latch on to, to escape. And so even now I'm sitting here thinking about the kinds of candy I ate, you know, the way in which I ate, it was bags, it was isolation, it was by myself. Um, it showed on my body, it was humiliating, I felt shame. I remember I was thinking about this recently. I, you know, I was, I was so heavy as sort of like a teenager that my thighs would rub together and there would be holes in my pants because my thighs would just always rub together. And, um, you know, the shame, just the shame of that. And, you know, I certainly thought, oh, if I was skinny, everything would be okay. Um, and my father, you know, at the time, there was only the chubby section. I think they literally called it the chubby section for clothes. And my father would take me there and be enraged that he would have to, you know, like take me to find special clothes for my body, basically. Um, so that was sort of my run around food. And I, I will share my bottom because it's so sad. Um, and I guess, you know, I guess, you know, whatever. I, I have, I was running with a family member. It was pouring rain. Me and this family member went out to eat. But before we went out to eat, we, we, so we had to get money from the ATM. We went to the ATM and the ATM was, it wasn't working. So we had to go to an entirely different neighborhood to get money from an ATM in the pouring rain with my little daughter, she had to be about six, I think. She's 34 now. Dragged her in the rain, went to the other ATM, stopped off at a bakery to eat, and then went to an all-you-can-eat restaurant. And by the time I got home, I had to undo my pants. And I thought to myself, what did I just do? I felt like I had dragged my daughter to cocaine spots. Like, that's how bad it was. You know, I came home and I thought, what, like, what did I just do? Because I was just on a tear. I was on a run. And, you know, I used to use my body to hide the food I was buying so my daughter couldn't see it so I wouldn't have to share it. Uh, and then I think, you know, one, I used to, I love, I love to bake. I have not baked in over 20 years because what happened was, <laughs> I used to like to bake. 
And then it was, you know, I would make these things for my daughter's teachers. We would have the tins, we would work together. And, you know, she woke up one morning and she said, why is this tin so light? Like she went to bed, the tin was full, but you know, I'm just, I'm just going to have one, right? I'm just going to have another one. You know, I'm just, I'm just going to have one more. I couldn't stop myself. And the shame of telling my little one, like, you know, so, you know, I ate them. I don't even know if I told her that, but like, you know, because I couldn't stop. So maybe we were going to give her teacher 20 of the items and it, you know, we, it went to school with four. And then one day I was thinking about how did I get into OA? I came in through another, well, I'm not even another fellowship. I started in Al-Anon and I went to this church in New York, St. Bart's. I will never forget St. Bartholomew's on 50th and Park Avenue. That's where I got my early recovery. I loved, I mean, I used to pray and meditate in the empty chapel. That place saved my life. And they had a, bulletin board with all of the 12-step meetings and what rooms they were in so I could find, you know, we could find the meetings and where we needed to go. And I knew where OA was. <laughs> and I just, you know, I wasn't ready. You know, I just, I don't know what was going on, but I read this article in Essence Magazine, which is a black women's magazine, and it was about a woman who had lost a lot of weight and how she did it. And I remember reading the article over a weekend, and at the end of the article, they listed resources. And OA was one of those resources that was listed. And that was how I ended up in OA. And I, I went into OA, so it had to be about 1996, maybe, maybe 97. And I knew I had a problem with food. I, you know, I was a yo-yoer. I had clothes in my closet from a 5'6 to I was busting out of a 1718 by the time I came into OA. So I had, you know, I, and I learned how to diet. I knew how to diet. I knew how to lose weight. That's and your first 10 minutes. Thank you, Arlene. And my obsession with my body was so bad that when I would run into people in the street, which often happens in New York City where I'm from, I would stand there for the first couple minutes and say, was I fatter when they saw me last? Oh my God, what are they thinking about my body right now? But, you know, so I wasn't even present. It was just like, you know, all this focus on food and, and, and my body and where it's at and, you know, what am I, you know, what am I doing around my food? I mean, so obsessed. But I came into OA like nobody better tell me nobody's taking my food away. I came in sitting in meetings with my arms crossed, and like a pissed off addict. Like nobody better tell me, you know, anything about my food, right? And I didn't want to share, and I, I, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to let go of my food. I just, you know, I want, still wanted to eat, but I wanted to be thin, right? I wanted to be skinny, but I was gonna, I'm still gonna eat, and people would just smile at me. I remember this one woman, she just smiled at me. I'm like, oh, okay, you know? And then I started to branch out and I'd go to another meeting on 53rd and 5th St. Thomas in this little children's room up the little stairs and um, powerful recovery, 15, 20 people. And this one woman, she was the newcomer contact and she would call me. I'm like, well, why is she calling me? I'm binging. What am I going to say to her? I'm like, okay, you know, I'll pick up the phone and, you know, and she would just say, would you, would you like me to read you some literature? 
And I do that to this day with newcomers, you know, because the literature is so impactful. I could pick up any piece of literature that's conference approved and read it to a newcomer and we can both relate. And she just would read literature. And then one day magically, because I would have these big frozen yogurts after meetings with all the toppings. That was my treat every day after an Al-Anon meeting, right? And I said to her, you know, I'm having this food almost every day and I don't know about it. She said, well, you can put it in the freezer and if you want it tomorrow, you can have it tomorrow. I was like, oh, okay, I, I could do that. And she helped me to put down this thing that I felt like I had to have every day. And it was certainly, I was certainly doing it out of wanting to stuff my feelings. And that was, I think, the beginning of my recovery. I mean, I've been abstinent. So I've been in a way for over 20 years, maybe 25. I'm not a good tracker of time. And, and I've had long strings of abstinence. I just came back from a relapse that literally in 2018 for about three months, all I wanted to eat was carbs for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I was in a depression and I was grieving something, a job that I loved and I had lost. And, and I was incapable of working this program in the way in which I needed to, to keep me abstinent. I couldn't. And the self-hatred that came over me because I know a different way. It was worse than the food because I knew a different way. Somebody reminded me recently about how people in AA, you know, like basically AA ruins their drinking. And I'd lay in bed and all I wanted to do was watch TV. I took care of my five-year-old daughter as best I could, but all I wanted to do was shrink into myself, watch TV and have popcorn for lunch, a bagel for breakfast. And by the end, I was eating barbecue potato chips, the whole bag. I hadn't done that in over 20 years. The disease is progressive. So I am so grateful. It's been over a year of abstinence for me. I'm so grateful. And I got abstinent oh, around the holidays of 2018. It's, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. I got abstinent over, you know, over the holidays. And we had to, my husband and I had to move out of a place that we were in for nine years. And underneath my bed, I had over 30 years, 29 years. I've been in, you know, recovery for 30, almost 30 years this year in the summer. I found 30 years of literature underneath my bed that I had not looked at. And there was something about that that jogged my recovery into full blast. And where I'm at today is there isn't a day that I don't talk to somebody in recovery my life is so built around, it's, I was telling my husband, I almost feel like it's a runaway train, how much recovery I'm immersed in. So this is probably, oh my gosh, this is my fifth meeting today, three in another fellowship, that's a long story. I didn't intend for that to happen. I just, somebody was speaking at a meeting and I hopped on to the third one. And then my second OA meeting today, um, there's a, a you know, an Ebony and OA meeting that has been happening and it's actually rooted in LA and it's now opened up um, Sisters in Recovery and it's black women in LA has joined forces with Ebony and OA and that meeting is every Saturday and it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be on a meeting with all people of color and mostly black people. You know, I felt a little sad just now looking at the people on the meeting and wanting more of that diversity. And then I saw some people from the Ebony meeting here and it made me feel 
safer and better and like highly supported. And it's not that, you know, as I was listening to the people, it's like, yeah, this disease ravages people. It doesn't matter what we look like. But at the same time, there's a particular experience that I have as a black person that gets addressed in those meetings that I don't feel that comfort in meetings that lack. Sometimes I'm often, often, often the only black person in a meeting. And it can be a little, there's a wall that I have to walk through to get to my recovery when that happens. And I do it. I'm committed. I'm here. I'm here to get better for myself. Whew. I was just sharing with a friend of mine that the fact that we are in recovery means that we are adding to the world and not taking away from it. I remember one time, and actually on the release form for this meeting, it asked all these things like if I like was multiple addictions, person of color and something else. And I was like, oh, that's cool that, you know, that they would want to know if I'm, you know, multi-addicted and, you know, sadly I am. <laughs> I'm in quite a few fellowships. Um, but I have to say, I get on my knees every single day and I say the first three steps and food is the first thing that I say I'm powerless over. Because, gosh, without my abstinence, I'm not clear-headed. And I got in touch with, with the last relapse I had that I don't want to feel self-hatred. I already have to battle low self-esteem and negative voices and, you know, sometimes depression to add the self-hatred of the disease to it. That to me was the most debilitating part of me when I was in relapse. It was so debilitating knowing that there was another way and that there's freedom. My husband sat down next to me today. We've been married. It'll be 18 years in May and he, he took out some chocolate. He's like, do you want some? And I was, I don't, it's, it's strange to me. He's in the other room. He may hear me. I'm like, really? Is he offering me? Like, he knows I don't eat sugar. <laughs> I was like, no, I, you know, and I don't know. It was weird, right? Because he took it out and he was actually, it was him being very thoughtful. And that's something that he's working on, like thinking of me and wanting to share. So I, I took it in this pressure. It was really actually very precious that he didn't, you know, like he was showing me that he was thinking about me. And I looked at it and I was like, no, you know, no, I said, no, thank you. And then I wanted to get into this whole thing. Like, you know, I don't need sugar. But I said, I haven't had chocolate in I don't know how long. And I wanted to say to him, but how does it taste? <laughs> I, was, I was like, oh, you know, like I'm looking at the size of it and it was two chunks of pieces, you know. And then I was like, you know, I just went back. We were watching a movie and I just went back to watching the movie because that was my disease, wanting to get in there to see what I'm missing. And I'm not missing a thing. I turn my food over every day. I write it down. I go food shopping. I have three meals a day. You know, it went to one snack. I was talking to my sponsor, my food sponsor, and I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm hungry between lunch and dinner. And I'm like, I eat like an old lady. I'm up at 5 a.m. So I, you know, I have breakfast at 5 a.m. I'm having lunch between 10.30 and 11, you know, and then I'm having dinner. Like my friends are like, what? You know, like you eat dinner at four or five o'clock? Yes, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Um, and she's like, well, maybe you need a snack, not anything heavy, but maybe you, I, and I'm like, oh my God, but what about the weight? You know, 
It's none of my business. I have not had a scale in my home in over 20 something years. I get, I get obsessed, I get obsessed. I'm on it, I'm off it, I'm on it, I'm off it. I went, I treated myself for my birthday to my favorite hotel and they had a scale. I was like, oh, let me, let me get on the scale. And the scale said a number that I don't think, well, I haven't, whatever. The scale was wrong. The first day it said 147.5. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> like that's a lot. And then the next day it said one fifty. Your final 10 minute warning. Thank you. It said 157.5, which is more in par with where my body levels off when I'm abstinent. And, you know, but then I noticed like my disease wanted me to gain that weight back. And I wanted the heavier richer foods and I had to start to talk about it and for me the minute I start to talk about a food it's the beginning of me letting it go and I have learned when I get in that boxing ring with a piece of food and it's an inanimate object I get knocked down every single time if I think I'm going to win a battle with the food that I'm struggling with I never win that battle that food has power over me it will pull me call me try to kill me. And, you know, sometimes I forget how lethal this disease is. And I used to, I used to go to a lot of OA conventions. And I remember people would come from Europe for a convention in the United States. And I would look around and say, this is serious. If somebody is coming from out of the country to get recovery, you know, and people would come and they would bring their pants that would be like three times the size they were. It would jolt me into the severity of this disease that I could die. You know, I could very well die from this disease. It's, it's no joke. What I love when I get on my knees every morning is that it reminds me that this is a WE program. And I literally have people I can call about any area of my life and be honest. And I am so imperfect and it's great. I woke up the other day and I realized if my higher power wanted me to be perfect, my higher power would have made me that way. I get to learn, I get to strive. Um, I think that's it. You know, I, a plug for the steps. I've gone through the steps several times. I don't know how many fourth steps I've done. I, you know, I love me a resentment that I can nurse and I love seeing what's underneath that resentment you know, the fear or the this or that. And it's like, oh, that person doesn't really have power over me. But the resentment will make me feel like somehow that person has power over me. Making amends has changed my life. I mean, I've been able to see my part in doing the fourth step in a way. Like when I did my first fourth step in a way, I just saw the big letter V over it, victim. Like I really felt like all these people had done me wrong, you know, and I... I was, you know, I, I really saw this pattern that I had and uh, it's just helped me. I remember after I did my fourth step, somebody looked at me and said, you look lighter. And I was like, yeah, I gave it, you know, I gave, it did my fifth step, you know. Um, oh, yeah, a plug for the steps, a plug for making two, three calls a day, a plug for calling newcomers, a plug for picking up the phone, even when I don't want to, a plug for praying meditation a plug for getting on my knees. I still learn. I'm in the middle of my eighth step now. I never spent so much time on six and seven before where I really learned more about humility, that it's not about low self-esteem and it's not about arrogance, that it's okay for me to say and think 
well of myself and that I'm a representative of God. I'm a representative of, of the program. And I want to say I every meal, this is the other thing that I'll share, and this is the last thing I'll share before I stop. At every single one of my meals, I pray that it's enough because I'm an addict. And no matter how much food is on my plate, I get scared it's not going to be enough. I pray that it's enough. It's always enough. It's always enough. And I pray for the addicts. You know, I pray that pain of being in the addiction and what it'll do is so painful. And I'm so grateful that there's another way. I'm so grateful. You know, I'm so grateful that this program, I'm just thinking like, you know, Dr. Bob and Bill W. And, you know, I remember when I first started reading the big book, I know I said I would finish after that last thing, but I guess I have one last thought. But, <laughs> um, that I thought like, oh my gosh, I can't believe these like white men. And at the time I was in my twenties, these older white men could, could understand me, you know, and like get this, the sense of me. And it's, it's powerful. And I think some of it is just not even just addicts. I think some of it is just human nature, but I think for me as an addict, it, it's like, I take it to, you know, another extreme, my stuff. And Oh, I'm so grateful. You know, you're looking at a really grateful, compulsive overeater. I could not do it alone. I'm grateful for everybody being here. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, Francis. That was wonderful. Um, so we do have a few minutes for questions. Um, if you can please click on reactions at the bottom of the screen and click raise hands, we can go ahead and start calling on the participants. Okay. First question is for Akila. Yeah, hi. Um, thanks, um, Francis, so much for your share. I have a, yeah, my question is, you mentioned that, um, you know, going to a meeting and being one of the few, if not the only person of color, is a wall sometimes that you have to go through to get to your recovery. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to go through that wall? Like, what are the strategies you use to get through that wall? And if maybe there are some other walls and how you, what strategies you use for that? Thanks. Oh, that's a great question. And I'm uncomfortable, but I'm going to do it. Um, you know, I used to look around and get really upset that there weren't more Black people knowing that Black people were suffering. And, and then one year, I just said, you know what, whoever is around me, that's who, like, that's who's going to help me with my recovery. Whoever's here, you know, so my homegirls in New York, some of my closest friends, you know, ended up not being black people in this program because I just desperately needed the help. And I don't know, I just stayed. I'd feel frustrated. I'd feel upset, but I wouldn't let me, I wouldn't let it have me leave meetings. I just stayed and I just kept coming back. Thank you. Um, Deanna? Thank you, Deanna Compulsive Eater. Thanks so much, Francis. Um, I just wanted to know, as far as uh, the relapse that you came out of last year, um, is there anything that you would do differently, you think, in your program or that you do differently this time around, you think that could um, prevent the relapse from happening again? Did it kind of change your program? It absolutely changed my program. It, it showed me that I cannot do it alone and that I need safety nets 
to help me to stay abstinent. So my girlfriend that I speak to every day, we I literally try to make sure that she and I connect every single day and I know I can be honest with her about my food. And it showed me that I have to turn my food over every day. I can't be trusted to do it on my own. It showed me that I have to hustle for this recovery. I can't lay in my bed and watch Netflix and eat carbs. It's not gonna come that way. I have to hustle and I do. I hustle every single day for me to be abstinent. So even me getting on my knees every day and saying the first three steps and praying at every meal and trying to call two to three people a day and staying connected, all of that, and me working the steps again, all of that, and making two to three meetings a week, at least sometimes in a day, all of that, and reaching out. One of the big things that I've done in COVID is when I hear people are struggling, I reach out to them in a meeting. Like I say, oh, this person's struggling. Let me make sure that they feel connected so they don't have to pick up. That's helped my program. Thank you. And the third day. Hi, I hope you can hear me okay. Am I breaking up? Great. Francis, thank you so much for your recovery. I wanted to ask, when I came into these rooms, I didn't have a higher power. Or if I did, it was just what other people think of me and my resentments. That was my higher power. What is your relationship with a higher power? How did you develop it? And how has it grown over your time in recovery? And thanks again for your share. Thank you. That is such a great question. When I came in, I felt so let down by a higher power. I really felt like there wasn't a God because my teenage years were so horrific in my dysfunctional family that I thought there couldn't be a God. And I, I love, I love that there's a man when they started this program who fought for that language that said, as we understood him. So my, like, I'm thinking of this crotchety man who was like, no, we need that language, right? Um, thank you to that person. Because for me, it started with the sunlight and the trees. And then it morphed and I mean, I went in all different kinds of places with spirits and <laughs> I, just, I just, whatever I wanted it to be. And then recently, more recently, when I, when, you know, I would say the serenity prayer at meetings, I would think of the African ancestors that got lost in the transatlantic ocean, you know, like during the slave trade, I would pray for them. More of a West African, you know, um, a West African religion into like what I want God to be. You know, I think about people who've died and I ask them to help me. So it's, it's whatever it is that I want it to be. And I love that invitation in this program. It's what I need it to be. Nobody else can enforce that on me. Thank you so much, Francis. And time is up.